A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. One of the things about women in ADHD is there's so many potentially confounding variables like perimenopause or menopause or hormones or even, um, you know, babies' infrastructural uh, bias against, you know, the fact that we don't have infrastructural supports in this country. And so perhaps even neurotypical women are having problems with their memories these days, you know, and uh, that women as a group have been neglected in terms of research. And health. so there's so many, it's like a bowl of fish hooks, you know, you pick up one and 15 seem to come up with it. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to give a shout out to the Women and ADHD online community. It's been so great getting to know each other in this space and sharing our idiosyncrasies in a safe way with other women who really understand what we're going through. I think one member, Autumn, said it best in one of her posts when she said, I really appreciate this group and the fact that I can just throw out all my thoughts and not have you guys give me the this girl is nuts side eye. If you're interested in joining us, head over to womenandadhd.com or you can find the link in the show notes. In the premium group, we have weekly body doubling sessions and we meet via Zoom twice a month for general discussions about living our lives as women with ADHD. And I feel so incredibly grateful every time we get together for how supportive and insightful and intelligent these members are. Like I'm realizing just how rare it is for us to find these sorts of friendships and how lovely it is to feel so deeply understood and just unburden ourselves and have no masking or shame in our discussions. It's rare and lovely. So thank you to everybody who has been participating in this community. And again, if you'd like to join us, we would love to have you. So head over to womenandadhd.com or you can find the link in the show notes. Okay, this is episode 52 in which I interview Emily Donahoe. Emily is an accomplished actor, writer, producer. She has performed on Broadway, Off-Broadway, and at regional theaters around the country. She's won an Obie Award. She's a recipient of the Helen Hayes Award and was a Beinecke Fellow at the Yale School of Drama. This fall, she will be guest starring on FBI's Most Wanted on NBC and on Amazon's Dead Ringers with Rachel Weiss. And she also has a recurring role in American Rust on Showtime, which just premiered September 12th. She's also the founder of Women Speak, a program that trains women in public speaking and gives diversity partners and organizations the best tools available for increasing the female voice in the public arena. Emily and I are also neighbors and our kids are in the same school district. And she, when she found my podcast, she was like, hey, I think I know that woman. Uh, so she reached out to me and now we're both so excited to have actual live in the flesh ADHD friends that we can hang out with. Emily was diagnosed in college 
by her psych professor and then kind of forgot about it until the stress of the pandemic brought back some of the symptoms to the foreground and she had a renewed interest in what the heck was going on with her brain. We talk about what it's like to be in the theater world with ADHD, and we also end up talking quite a lot about sexist expectations in our society and looking at that from a neurodivergent perspective. In true ADHD fashion, our conversation darts around like a ping pong ball going a mile a minute. So uh, buckle up, keep your arms and legs in at all times, and enjoy the ride. Cool. So, well, welcome to the Women in ADHD podcast. I'm so excited to finally be interviewing you. I've been, pe- I feel like I've been pestering you for a while. <laughs> I am so this. happy to be here. And I've been such a fan of the podcast for so long that this is like especially awesome for me because I I adore it so much. So thanks for having me. Well, I have to, okay, first of all, we have to get this story out of the way because I, I just get such a kick out of like picturing you discovering this podcast. So, okay. So Emily and I, for, for you listeners, Emily and I, our kids go to the same school, or at least they did in elementary school. We live in the same neighborhood. And so when, um, Emily's son was at the elementary school, I was the PTA president. And so I've talked about this in previous episodes about what a disaster it was for me to be this PTA president and chronic volunteerism and all this stuff. And so like, here you are, somebody had recommended this podcast to you, right? No. No, actually, how it happened was I was on Twitter searching for information and I came across your Twitter and I saw the really small profile picture and I was like, I know her. (laughs) I know her. And then when I opened and saw your picture, I was like, this cannot be the head of the PTA at Marvelton. Like, what are the chances of that? I know, right? And so then I started Googling around and asking around. And then I found out um, from a friend, a friend that we have in common that in fact, it was you. And I was like, that's what I thought. But it's so funny because um, I have been studiously avoiding the PTA and those types of obligations, knowing that I don't do well with things like that. So I feel like a lot of times I would see you from afar and I'd be like, I hope she doesn't ask me to do something because like, I know that I'm so bad at that. My executive function skills are not the best. Let's just say (laughs) Anyway, I was delighted when I found out that we were connected and that we knew each other. And I just could not believe what a small world it was. I know, Um, right? I found you on Twitter and you're my neighbor. I just think it's wild. I know. And I was like, I have real life ADHD friends because this has been such this like big deal for me in terms of figuring out like who are the people I'm most sort of attracted to and connected to. And, you know, I feel such connection to women with ADHD and I'm like sorting out, you know, this whole long sorted history of like, why have I had issues with female friendships and all of the expectations yeah. and all of that. And so, yeah, it was so exciting when we went out for coffee or for breakfast it was like a real life one. <laughs> I know. I felt the same way. It's really, really true. Um, and I know it's been the same for me that like all these light bulbs have gone off when I've reconnected with my diagnosis during the pandemic. So yeah. exactly the same way. Okay. So let's talk about that. So you, so when you said reconnected with your diagnosis, so when were you first, you were first diagnosed back in college, right? I was diagnosed in college. I uh, was a double major in college, which is also like such an ADHD thing, right? Like looking back, I would not have done that, but I did it. <laughs> and I, one of my majors was, I was a psych major and I had a professor who, um, said to me based on my performance in class and what she had watched, uh, Uh, what she'd seen in my papers and things like that uh, and discussions that I'd had with her in private. She's like, you know, have you ever been evaluated for ADHD? 
And I said, no, I mean, like, no. And it was my last semester of college. So I wasn't particularly interested in it. Um, but the more I thought about what she said, I realized, and, you know, it was the late 90s. So it was kind of around the time that we were getting our heads wrapped around the fact that this was not just a condition that little boys had. And so I think there was this kind of <clears throat> resurgence and there was this awareness that like women could have it. And so I was the beneficiary of a lot of literature and research and interest in the fact that like women could have it too. It just happened to line up that way. And so at first when she suggested it, I was pretty resistant to it because I, like everybody was like, I'm not like a five-year-old boy bouncing off the walls. And then I started researching. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is me. And I went and was officially diagnosed and they suggested putting me on Ritalin. But college was almost over and I knew I'm a professional actor and I knew that I was going to pursue acting and I knew that my days of sitting down and writing papers and all the struggles that I'd had as a college student, that those days were coming to an end. And I wasn't particularly interested in that. And frankly, uh, I would say that even though it was starting to become like a much more developed idea, like what ADHD was and how it manifested in women, it was nowhere near what it is now. And so even though um, I was lucky that, you know, I was noticed, I guess you could say, and diagnosed, um, I kind of looked at the symptom list and talked to the doctor and I was like, yeah, but you know, I'm not going to write papers. I don't need Ritalin. So I did some behavior modification stuff and talked to a therapist um, and things like that. And I kind of found my way. And like many with this diagnosis, my professional life suits it well. You know, so I just kind of, I'm novelty seeking, I'm hyperactive, I hyperfocus, and those are all really good qualities if you're an actor or in a creative field. So the things that had been liabilities in a traditional academic setting actually began to serve me. And then I was able to do some behavioral modification stuff around my memory issues, like losing keys and things like that. Yeah. So I, I muddled along that way. And then when the pandemic hit, <laughs> and I think there are a lot of women that have had this experience um, I really forgot about ADHD because I felt like I'd solved for it and it was fine. And then the pandemic hit and um, my work life completely came to a stop, you know, like all production stopped, all theater stopped. I also have a consultancy, which specializes in public speaking that stopped. Like everything I did professionally was essentially a super spreader event. So like they all stopped and everything that I had automated or delegated because I have ADHD also stopped being helpful. So, you know, like having someone uh, able to come over and help clean or a babysitter or, uh, you know, those kind of things, like all of a sudden they were meaningless, you know? Um, so, and things like shopping required an extra step of, at the beginning, I was one of those people that like washed down the groceries and quarantined them in the car, you know? So everything changed. And, um, I realized that I needed help that I, you know, I was inattentive. My energy was really dysregulated. My, my memory was terrible. And I called a doctor and, um, I called my doctor and, you know, he's lovely. He's like, let's just try Ritalin. You know, if you have this diagnosis, I was like, I was diagnosed with ADHD, but it doesn't mean too much to me, really. It's been so many years. And I, wait, this was a GP. No, this was a psychiatrist. Okay. So I, I was going to say, yeah, this because, is very progressive for a male to be well, just like trusting your diagnosis. Well, <laughs> I, for, I, I, know, that's I hear true, so many stories of like, you know, having to convince men over and over and over again. Uh, um, I have a lot of opinions about that, but I would say I agree with that, but I am lucky to have a wonderful male psychiatrist okay. 
he's, it took me years to find him. He's wonderful. Um, and I take uh, Prozac because I have anxiety um, and I'm a phobic flyer, which is so, which always frustrates me so much. But so I had someone I was seeing to get the prescription for Xanax to fly. And when I was talking to him, I said, I got this diagnosis a while ago and I'm having a really hard time with energy and memory and focusing on like the paperwork that I need to do. And he said, you know, suggested Ritalin. And I am one of those people who, when I took Ritalin, it was like putting on a pair of glasses. Like it was 45 minutes later, I was really like, whoa, is this what it's like for everybody else? Like it was such a day and night difference. And I know that people have, there's such a lot of different experiences with meds, but I was lucky that that was my experience. Um, And so then I started going back into what HD was and God, the science has come so far since I was first diagnosed and the community has grown so much and there's terminology that wasn't available to me. Um, and so, uh, so I'm happy to be back in this community and finally getting proper treatment and um, learning about like, you know, how it's been a great year. I mean, it's really been, a, you know, I know people probably have mixed feelings about Ned Hollowell saying it's a good news diagnosis, but in my case, that was true because yeah. I was really, really struggling. And, um, and then I got meds and I was able to find resources like your excellent community, um, which I'm on all the time, like a crazy obsessed person, um, <laughs> connecting with other women and getting good advice about like symptom management and also celebrating the diagnosis and the things that are really good about it. So I realized that was a long, that was a very hyperactive answer, but this is kind of how I am. I just go, 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 no, go, I go. know. Well, and, and I think so much of the experience with a diagnosis is, is, what am I trying to say? I think so much of the treatment is um, the shared experience, you know, and the almost like the allegory of other people's lives and how it relates to our lives and these shared stories. And I think, you know, like just reading articles about symptoms, like, you know, the term executive function, when you sort of know what it means, you can kind of use it as shorthand. But for the, when you're first learning about what ADHD is, terms like executive function don't mean anything, right? Or, or right. even RSD and like all of these terms that you're sort of like, I don't really know what that means or if I have it. But then when you hear people talking about like the inability to, you know, to come up with structures of their own to help with symptoms or, you know, when you start like talking about what actually executive function is in your life and what it means and how it applies to you. And then you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. I really struggle with that. Yeah, totally. like I, yeah. So, so much of my own journey has been like hearing other people talk about the kind of practical side of ADHD and how it relates to them in their lives, as opposed to like going online and reading medical journals, you know? So there seems to be like such this distance between the, the lived experience and the medical world in, in terms of ADHD and what I think why so many of us are having such a hard time translating our experience to medical professionals who really have only, you know, have only read about it in their in schooling or journals and that kind of thing and yes absolutely and I even when I even when I hear about experience that is totally different than my own um, I still find that illuminating because it helps me differentiate like what parts you know how it's expressed in me versus you know so it's like okay so I have less this and more this so um, to your point like even when somebody's experience is really different than mine it's still so helpful 
um, in my own journey, you know, to be like, wow, you know, like, okay, so it's manifesting like that for that person. And this is how it is for me. And, you know, kind of like what a crazy spectrum this thing is, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it has, I mean, it has been so transformational for me in terms of my own inner narrative and how I talk to myself and how I view myself in the world. Like it has absolutely, I know it is a problematic term, but it's been like an absolute good news diagnosis for me as well. But then again, like it's been so difficult to talk about it to people who have no idea what ADHD is. I've stopped talking about, you know, I've stopped really. Yeah. It's been such a great experience for me and it's been such a great experience to talk about with other women who are going through the same experience, but it's also been very isolating in terms of some of the people who were in my life that I have, you know, it's made it even more difficult to communicate with so many other people in my life. (laughs) I totally get that. And I, I, I wonder if like their experience in a way mirrors my own, which is, you know, when I first got the diagnosis, I was like, huh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I get it. And it wasn't until I myself was dismissive and I don't think the name necessarily helps, you know, so I know we're going to probably talk about that later, but so, um, but, you know, uh, and then it wasn't until I did a lot of research and a lot of connecting with people that I really understood what it was. So I know that I too have not really figured out how to talk to people about it. And the name brings with it a lot of baggage, you know, so people think they know, but they don't know. That's often been my experience talking to others. Yeah. So, okay. So, you are, you know, an accomplished actor. You've been acting for more than 20 years, right, at this point? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so my biggest questions about acting and ADHD, like, because it must blow your mind thinking about some of the executive function issues, but, like, my biggest questions are, how do you memorize anything? Um, has it changed over the years? Is it something, because my memory has gone off a cliff, and so I'm kind of trying to figure out, is this estrogen, you know, is this perimenopause, is this, you know, related to what's causing, like, I do definitely feel like my working memory is worse than it was maybe a couple of years ago. But like, what have, what have you noticed about memory and memorization with ADHD as an actor? And then I also want to ask you about like rejection, because that's another thing I've thought about, like, what, how do you deal with rejection as an actor? Because it's something we struggle with so much. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, I would say that, so the way that uh, the, the kind of like manifestation for me is that my long-term memory is excellent, but my short-term memory is not good. And this has always been true. And it got worse during puberty and then kind of like really crested in college, which I guess is the hormonal journey. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, one of the things about women in ADHD is there's so many potentially confounding variables like perimenopause or menopause or hormones or even um, babies, you know, babies, infrastructural uh, bias against, you know, the fact that we don't have infrastructural supports in this country. And so perhaps even neurotypical women are having problems with their memories these days, you know, and uh, that women as a group have been neglected in terms of research. And so there's so many, it's like a bowl of fish hooks, you know, you pick up one and 15 seem to come up with it. Um, But for acting, I would say happily, the line memorization thing is not the issue for me. I would say that what the issue is for me more is there's the first rehearsal that you have when you're off book. And that's, I I don't get stage fright as an actor, um, which I think is the novelty seeking part. So a lot of people will get nervous, very experienced, wonderful, genius actors even get stage fright. But for me, I get very focused. And I think that's a totally chemical thing. Um, But the first rehearsal off book is a nightmare for me. And the real issue I have, I mostly work in the theater, is losing props. Like I lose 
props. And that is a <laughs> problem. And it's a problem on a film set too, because you have to have continuity, you know? So if they give you a briefcase that has the papers for your scene in it, and in between setups, you set it down and there are 500 people on a set and they're ready to call you to start. And you're like, I can't find my briefcase. That's a major problem. So I have learned to ask for the accommodation of having a prop wrangler. And it's really embarrassing still because it feels, especially as a mother, I think I'm very much like we've got to teach responsibility and accountability. And I certainly don't want to infantilize myself as a woman of professional space, but I know if I don't ask for help, I will lose them. And when, you know, I think a lot of people with ADHD have this experience often when they're found, no memory of how it got there, you know, no memory at all. So um, the lines aren't as much of an issue um, as the prop thing is. And that might sound like a small deal, but it actually can be a real inconvenience to a group that's moving very quickly and needs you to have your shit together. You know? Oh so, yeah. I mean, just from my own experience as uh, stage managing in high school, I, I understand the importance of that. Totally, yeah. But totally. I also feel like, you know, I caught you because I feel like something that we tend to misconstrue a lot of the time is this idea that asking for help is somehow not equal to accountability and responsibility. You know, that your first oh, yeah. instinct is like, I felt like it was irresponsible of me to require this help. And I'm like, no, that's the problem is that like, the, we need to flip that script and we need to really think about like, um, that level of accountability, that level of responsibility is, you know, asking for that help and making sure that you do have these safeguards in place. That is responsible. You are right. That is an, you are right. And that is an important point. And I will try to think of it that way. I would say that sometimes my self-talk can be pretty abysmal about this too. And that's like old Well, no, stuff. I know. I, that's what I mean. Like yeah. if we can catch it in each other and, um, and help each I other, because I do it all the time. I mean, I feel like we have grown up and I feel like that's definitely the, the being the female experience, which is just like somewhere along the line, whether or not it's, you know, living in a misogynist society or whether it's the, the homemaker mentality or whatever it is, but just like we have been bred to believe that asking for help is a deficiency. And that's like Absolutely. my MO now is to totally change that. And just I be love like, that. No. Yeah. We're taught that it's a character flaw. Yeah. Right. That it's like a character flaw. Um, you know, and I, I feel like that was definitely my experience growing up as an undiagnosed person with it. And even in adulthood too, it's like, you know, Emily, it's like really time to grow up or you really got to get it together. And it didn't matter that I could be, and I think this is also not an exceptional experience with people with ADHD, but a pretty common one. I could be overperforming in other areas of my life, but somehow it was like an indicator of like my refusal to grow up or like it was somehow pathologized in terms of my character rather than my brain. Yeah. Um, and I even have, I have mixed feelings about pathologizing the type of ADHD that I seem to have. I don't necessarily think all of it is even in fact a pathology, you know, but, um, that, uh, we, I think in general, we like to make women feel that <laughs> their differences are a problem, a disease, a, you know, or a failing, a failing. Um, and so, I think this is a really important point, this idea. That is a form of accountability and we have to correct each other. And I'm happy to be caught by you, Katie. I'm happy <laughs> to be caught by that. Um, and then the other thing, what did you ask? Oh, about rejection. Rejection, um, yeah. So RSD, rejection sensitivity, sensitivity dysphoria, right? So RSD yeah. stands for. Mm -hmm. So I don't 
think I don't not sure that I have that. And that's a really new idea to me. I would say I've been the best. <laughs> I have other many, many <laughs> other issues. Do not get me wrong. Um, You're like opening your trench coat. They don't lay on this side. They're on this side. Um, <laughs> but I feel I'm not sure I could be an, an actor if I had very strong RSD. And I think that you've pointed that out in a way in asking the question. I have um, really thick skin about rejection. Um, and, uh, and I also, some of the mood dysregulation stuff, I feel like doesn't apply for how ADHD manifests in me as much as the attention dysregulation, the energy dysregulation and the memory issues. Um, so, but I have had my mind blown so many times by what I've learned about ADHD in this past year alone that I'm really interested in rejection sensitivities for. I'm really interested in that idea and what it might be. Um, but I don't, it seems like it is such a real, um, how do you, how would you say like painful experience for the people that have it, um, that I'm, I'm really taking that at face value and being like, you know what, maybe that's not in my symptom picture because I'm not sure that I could constantly throw myself up to being rejected and humiliated and criticized. I just don't think I could do it because I'm a sensitive person. I have yeah. my other sensitivities. And so um, but I would be, I think it'd be really interesting to talk to other artists and particularly actors that do have RSD. Cause I imagine that journey, like how they found their way must, it must be really incredible. Yeah. I haven't interviewed very many actors. I've interviewed quite a few illustrators and painters who, you know, that crossover with imposter syndrome and RSD is really a fascinating topic just in terms of being so incredibly talented and yet having the, um, self-esteem of, of an, I don't know what a terrible self-esteem is, but, you know, just not having yeah. the, you know, having that, that dichotomy between the, um, their talent and their self-esteem. And I guess that's what I sort of related to just because that was really, for me, I was never, I didn't come to my ADHD diagnosis through my child, like a lot of women do, or I didn't, right. you know, for me, it was my therapist who saw how poorly I thought of myself. And she was like, you come in here and you talk about all of these things that you are doing and accomplishing. And yet you feel like you are trash. And she was like, that was sort of the, that was the indicator for me. It wasn't hyperactivity or anything. It was just the, that, that inverse relationship seemingly between how much I was accomplishing and how I thought of myself that tipped her off to ADHD with, I think it's interesting because like, we don't talk about that as much. Well, and to be clear, um, I don't think I have RSD, at least I haven't yet come to that conclusion, but I definitely have self-esteem damage. Piece of shit, years piece of, of shit syndrome, as I call it. ADHD <laughs> stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm just like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like I just constantly, and I still have a lot of that self-talk and, you know, I suppose that some of it is part of a healthy psyche, right? Like we self-correct, you know, otherwise we'd be narcissist if we you never like critically looked at what we did and examined it and worked to change it. But in excess um, and with the contempt that I've had for myself, you know, in some of my self-talk about like not being able to motivate or not being able to focus or, um, and that's one thing that meditation helps me with a lot. Um, I know that you've talked about that with other people on the podcast too, this idea of meditation, which is by the way, not for everybody. And I think that's another thing we have to say to each other really plainly. Like, it's awesome if it's your thing, but there's a million other ways to thread that needle, you know? So, um, but for me, the first thing I identified when I sat down and really got serious about it was, I was like, what is this voice? What is this, what is this critical voice about that's not constructive criticism, that's rampant and 
cool and so you know uh and 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 a, and a version of so many different people who were cruel to me in my life uh that didn't understand nor did I you know that it was a learning difference that I had so um though I don't have RSD that self-esteem stuff I definitely can identify with that and I think a lot of the people that I've talked to particularly women with ADHD um are encouraged in fact to internalize that rather than make systemic changes mm. that can heal us all and not just heal us all, but like take good advantage of the very special skills that neurodivergent people tend to bring to situations, you know? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry that you went through that though. I mean, I feel like we have a lot of like, that's what's good about your community, you know, is that we have a chance to all connect and say to each other, like that sucks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we need those voices to replace the bad ones, you know? Um, yeah, and I think that that's why it's, yeah, it's so helpful to talk to other people with shared experiences because a lot of the time, like once you're ready to talk about it, you're kind of over the hump, you know? And so that's why unsolicited advice can be really annoying to us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like yeah. usually by the time I'm expressing and talking about this, I'm kind of over it or it's behind me or I've, you know, I'm at peace with it. Whereas like when I was really struggling with it, I wasn't talking about it. And so, um, so, um, I think, you know, it, it, it can be so difficult to talk about it with people who don't understand what you're going through because then they're immediately like, Oh, I'm so sorry. What can I do to help you? And you're like, yeah, I don't need your help. Don't (laughs) just help. I mean, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And that's why I feel like I love in the neurodiverse community where like there is that, that response, which is like, okay, what would you like me to do now? Are you, would you like to just vent? Would, are you looking for, you know, brainstorming advice? Like the fact that we can know like, okay, what response are you looking for right now? I feel like that's a very uh, ND response. I love it. Absolutely. And I need that kind of cue myself sometimes because I'm tend to be the friend and I really worked on this over the years, but to be like, here's what you should do. (laughs) I need people to be like, we don't need that. We don't need your big ideas. We just, (laughs) thank you though. But no, no. Okay. So let's backtrack a little bit then, you know, in terms of, um, growing up and, and did you have siblings? Did you, was anyone else diagnosed, um, when you were growing up and kind of, what did your parents seem to think of your diagnosis? Um, I think, you know, uh, so I have a younger brother. He's almost seven years younger than I am. He doesn't have it. My father certainly has it. Um, my father also has, uh, Parkinson's. Mm. Um, and so I've actually talked to, uh, and we have some very specific types of mental illness on that side of the family involving dopamine. So I've had some kind of interesting theoretical discussions, uh, with doctors on Reddit, just as a kind of aside about like what the future is like, maybe my dopamine's just a little wonky. You know what I mean? Like maybe I just kind of have some wonky dopamine, but, um, anyway, so, uh, my mom is a licensed professional counselor. She has a master's in special ed. She has almost a master's in marriage and family therapy. She's incredibly educated and has worked with different types of learners her whole life, you know? Um, and you know, whenever I've talked to her about it, she's like in the seventies and the eighties, like we just didn't know, you know, I think also because I had other interests, um, as a very young child. I was really interested in acting and playwriting and stuff like that, even as a really young kid. Um, I think they thought I was just kind of a spaz, like a creative, you know what I think? They were just like, she's just all over the place. And I talked all the time. All my report cards were like, 
Emily's very talkative. She needs to stop being talkative. When I was in kindergarten, we, I went to this kind of Montessori kindergarten, apparently, and they had different PlayStations set up. And there were 10 different PlayStations, and you were supposed to play in one so that by the end of the week, you would have played in at least in each station at least one time by the end of the week. And according to my parents, I would sit in the reading station until Thursday night. I wouldn't play in any other stations. And then I would come home, sob, have a nervous breakdown that I wasn't going to get my certificate. And then Friday, I would run around and play in all the other nine, like a frantic. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, man, that's like, so, you know, that has not changed. (laughs) It just hasn't changed at all, you know? So I think I had problems with perseveration. I think I had problems with hyper-focus and hyperactivity, all those things, you know, even in kindergarten. Um, And a lot of complaints about my talking too much and disrupting others and they were like you know she's not um aggressive she's just persistent like so like persistent and not like nevertheless she persisted like annoying like annoying persistent you know um so but then once I got swept into creative activities I think I seemed to really thrive and I was a good student and even when I um struggled in some classes I could kind of con my way you know like uh and to finding ways to kind of I don't know do well enough. Um, and so, you know, so because of that, the deficiencies I had in memory or in energy were often labeled even by people who cared about me very much as being like character faults. Um, and that, I think that was really, really painful. And I think they literally, none of, no one had the equipment to understand that like, um, I wasn't being inconsiderate. I literally couldn't remember you know, and so there was a lot of like trying to correct me back towards like happy to put me in a place where I could use my energy and thrive and be, you know, define success. Um, I think my parents were happy to find that. But I think there was a lot of confusion in my teenage and college years about why I just couldn't get my act together. And a lot of like, you know, you have so much potential and you're very bright and your teachers say this and that. But like I could not write a paper in college to save my life. Like I could go to the library and read, you know, I took an amazing seminar about psychopathy when I was a senior and sociopathy and psychopathy. And I was like, it's such a cool topic. I like matched myself as like Jodie Foster and silence of the lambs, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now we go to the library and I'd read about sociopathy and psychopathy for like eight hours. And then it'd be like time to write the paper. And I'd be like, no, thanks. So I would have done well in a system that had like oral exams, you know, or something like that probably. Um, so that was my experience growing up, you know, that I, that I was lucky that I had um, parents that were, kind of knew that I needed to be pointed in a direction that seemed to suit what I think they would have probably called my temperament. Um, and, uh, you know, some pain, you know, that we've done a lot of really great conversing around, even in the past year about like misunderstanding and my mom, even as a professional, and I think it's important to, for people to hear my mother who loves me more than anything and is a professional and was during that time did not have the tools to see it. Because I know, and she said, if she had, you know, she would have gotten me some help. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, really, so that, that's on my only point, you know, it's just that, like, you know, this is, this is a lot of, I think this about this lost generation of women with ADHD. And I, I don't know that I, I don't know how, I don't know if I feel like I'm in that or not, but I do know that I had every reason to be diagnosed, but that, you know, the building just hadn't been built yet. Right. I know, you know? that definitely helps me a lot when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of that, um, that kind of regret or, or, you know, looking back over my childhood and seeing, being like the signs were there all along and nobody did anything, but nobody knew my, my parents had no idea. And it's something I think a lot about when it comes to, 
you know, how I had two like straight A Ivy League older brothers and then I came along and, and my mother was always like very supportive and very loving and was just sort of like, well, not everybody gets A's in school. Like she always made a point of being like, that's totally fine. And you are good at other things. And she always would say things about like my street smarts versus my book smarts and, and how college isn't for everybody. And, um, Mm. And I look back now and I was like, well, that was really damaging to my psyche. (laughs) Like that really made me feel terrible about myself. But I also like, as a parent, I'm like, well, what would have been the correct way to respond to a child who wasn't doing well? Like it never occurred to her that I had a learning disorder. It never occurred to them that like, maybe I needed a tutor, you know, or maybe I was lying when I said I didn't have homework or like, like there was just so many ways in which it could have been handled better. But now as it like with my son, like during the pandemic and it was, he was sort of the same way, which was like, my daughter does really, really well in school. Mm-hmm. And then my son came along and he does, he did, hasn't, I mean, he's young, but he's, he never did well in school. He always right. did. Okay. And so my mentality was always like, well, not everybody's going to get straight A's and that's fine. And I support him in whatever he wants to do. But then with the pandemic and remote learning, he had me helping him in ways like I could type for him, you know, like I was basically like his administrative assistant. And so when I saw like the kind of help he needed, um, he did really, really well. And I was terrified to send him back to school because I felt like, okay, well now I've set him up for failure. You know, now I've set him up with a sense that this false sense of, of security that he thinks he's a straight A student, but he isn't really uh, without my help. And then I was like, wait a minute, like I'm getting this all wrong. No, all I have seen is how much help he now needs in order to become a straight A student. So now we can get him the tutor, we can get him the typing, like, you know, all of these things that I was able to help him with and the structures I was able to give him this year. I'm like, okay, now we just need to replicate that in the classroom. And so, but at the same time, like, I, I just think a lot about like what you know, how as parents, we, we tend to kind of have that labeling of our child of like, you're good at this and you're good at this and you're not good at this. And, and it, I, it's really difficult to stop that. Like I, I'm aware of the fact that I'm doing it and I'm aware of the fact that it's potentially damaging, but I'm also kind of like, I find it really difficult to, to step back. And, you know, it's almost like un un, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, just, you know, uh, un overall love without demands. What's the word? Unconditional love. Unconditional. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, um, Un- uh, yeah. The unconditional love of a parent is, is comforting and supportive, but it's also kind of like worthless, you know, in, in a way when it comes to motivation. And so I'm like very fascinated by like, what, you know, what damage well, am I going to be inadvertently doing to my child that I don't <laughs> So I think so much of it is about intention. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and so I mean, I, at least I got, I hope so. But I also think too, it's like, I mean, you essentially discovered an accommodation. You know what I mean? Like that's, the, it sounds like that's what you discovered for your son is like the necessary accommodations. And like, yeah. boy, I wish I'd had, I wish I'd had that, you know? I know. And oh, I know. I, I'm so grateful. I mean, I realize how privileged it is to even be able to be in that situation. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, it has been, it's been really eye opening just in terms of like the way that we kind of say things like not everybody can get straight A's as opposed to like, what do you need to get your A? 
<laughs> yes, 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 yes. And, and is that a meaningful metric? And like, also though, I think it does make sense as a parent when you have only so much bandwidth to a lot to each, you know what I mean? You have to, you start coming up with your shortcuts, you know, where you're like, okay, you're the, you're the funny one. You're the, you know, like you start trying to be like, cause you're moving so fast, you know? Um, it totally makes sense to me. I only have one son, you know, and I, he does not seem to have ADHD, which I'm very, I'm, glad that he doesn't um but he seems to have some of the hyper focus issues <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a developmental thing because he's eight but well, uh you know yeah it would be it'll be interesting because like my son's my son has never been disruptive he's never gotten in trouble and he is absolutely inattentive ADHD he is oh. um a daydreamer he doesn't listen he has terrible working memory all of the things that I had uh, so I'm like, he would never be, he would never be pulled out by a teacher and say, and you know, a teacher would never say he has ADHD because he's not a typical boy with ADHD, but he's a typical girl with ADHD. I mean, and right. and I see how much anxiety he brings on himself because he wants to do well and he can't, you know? And so yes. the, um, his, his, the, his lack of executive function to be able to like do simple things like remember, um, you know, with test taking and that kind of thing. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, he's absolutely inattentive ADHD. That is fascinating. I mean, also because like, I suppose the way that we're socializing boys and girls is hopefully evolving, you know? So that's idea that like, he might have the symptom picture that looks more like a girl with ADHD before a lot of the really meaningful conversations around gender expectation and things like, it's really fascinating. I wonder if that's going to become more common. Right. You know, yeah. Um, as we as we allow more sensitive uh, boys to develop, we stop pestering them to be, you know, tough guys. You know, we just let them bloom. You know, if we're going to see more inattentive, and as we allow girls to be more extroverted and raucous, if we're going to be like, oh, see, I wonder if we'll see the other side. It'll be a really interesting journey. You know. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, and also the the um, my husband and I have been talking about this a lot with therapy too, because we want to get him we want to get him involved with the therapist just. To because we're sort of like, rather than wait until you're in crisis mode, I'd rather you have like as many tools as possible to kind of bring usher you into your teenage years. And with girls, it's much easier to find kind of uh, social, emotional, developmental courses and groups and stuff. There's nothing for yes. boys. There's nothing for boys. There's I know. sports. I, and I was I like, know. are you no wonder they're all emotionally stunted, immature adults and we and are completely, you know, devoid of responsibility because we don't there's no social and emotional development out there. I can't believe it. You know, like the only thing I, they get us, are coaches. <laughs> coaches. And that's a that can be a real crapshoot, you know, no. because you can either get an app you know, one of the things that we've done um for our son along those lines is um we have we go to a church here that's an episcopalian church that's run by women um and you know it's like i that's really meaningful for my family you know um it's so funny because we're actually a family of zen practitioners but i was like i want him to have um I want him to kind of know the culture that he's from, you know, we're, you know, very Irish, you know, family. I was like, I want him to know that stuff. And, but I also want ethics. I mean, what I like about this church is they used to run the food pantry in town. They do a lot of social justice work, you know? And so for me or for us, I was like, I, I really just take him over there as much as anything to learn the value. He'll, his spiritual life will be his own, like whatever he wants to do. But I, I do feel like I've got to fill in that void. That's not available for a lot of little boys to see like women in meaningful positions of authority to see um, strong participation and social justice, to understand ideas about privilege, you know, like I, because I feel 
and I feel like that's the only place I could find it. You know, it's like, where do you find that gap in the curriculum for little boys? It's a really tough thing right now. You know, I love that. If you prefer listening to your books like I do, then I have some great news for you. My book, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom, is now available as an audiobook. In the book, I share my own sordid history with yo-yo dieting and binge eating and how I finally broke free. I also break down the six essential steps that helped me finally find food and body freedom. If you're sick and tired of the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle and you are ready to heal your relationship with food and your body, you're gonna wanna drop everything and listen to my book. It is a game changer, if I do say so myself. Reviewers have called it inspiring, insightful, amazing, refreshingly honest, and a must read for anyone for whom the dieting cycle has failed. So now you can find Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom on Audible or iTunes or Amazon or wherever you find your audiobooks. Happy listening. I mean, and you know, the other side of that that kind of makes me think of ADHD too is, you know, because of the consulting work I do, I, my company is called Women Speak Training and we do a lot of what we look to do is provide women with public speaking training because the research is so clear that many women haven't been socialized to speak in public the way that men have been, but also to help organizations evolve spaces of speaking and listening to be more inclusive. And so I'm very interested in this work. I've always have been. But through the lens of ADHD, I do wonder about things like girls being too chatty and things like that. Like, I'm like, are we pathologizing something in girls that like, uh, do we already have a resistance about the public voice of women or the public voice of girls? And we're making it into a symptom in some cases when really we are not evolved to accept bright women and the bandwidth that they will take up in public if we give them the chance, you know, um, are we labeling? And I think there is a pretty proven history that we label that a problem in the classroom more quickly with little girls than we do with little boys. And so sometimes when I look back at those report cards, and this is not to toot my own horn, it's some kind of like genius or something, but I was a good student, you know? Um, and I do wonder with some of the teachers, if, uh, <laughs> if the thing about my talkativeness was also like, I was bright and engaged, but girls like shouldn't talk that much, you know? And so I do want, I just wonder, and I really hope that like the research and the, ex- the experts move to investigate that corner of all this as well. Like, um, cause I feel like the type of student I have, I'm not sure that there was often room for me to just be the kind of student I was, you yeah. know, which was, I needed discussion. I needed to talk. Um, that helped me process the information. Um, I don't know. The, all, the ground is all shifting so quickly. The conversation changes so quickly, you know, but I know these are things I'm interested in. Yeah. No, I, I remember having that conversation with my mother with about Hillary Clinton, where she was like, I'm not against having a woman president. She's, I just don't want that woman as president. And I'm like, okay, they don't come any more qualified. So what exactly are you looking for in a woman? You know, like we were, had very like theoretical conversation about like, what is it about her that you find offensive and like what does that say about you? <laughs> you know? Well you know it's really fascinating there's um, a talk by a woman named Mary Beard um, who's like I guess like one of the most famous classicists in the world but she was um, and she did this she did an interview I, she did a series for the BBC years ago about Rome which is her expertise you know and she was bullied horribly for appearing and there were people were like you're not pretty enough to be on TV blah 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 so she became interested as a classicist and like where does this stereotype about women in public come from you know um and she traced it back to like ancient rome and she has some really interesting points to say like it's not just that 
men were encouraged to learn public speaking or to participate in rituals of public speaking as a rite of passage into adulthood. It's that the ideal woman is quiet. Mm -hmm. So silence is a virtue if you're female and that we still have remnants of that when we're assessing a woman's credibility in a public space. And so for Hillary Clinton, I feel like, you know, it's really hard when you're that competent, you know, there's something called the double bind dilemma, which is that women in positions of leadership can either be seen as likable or competent, but they have a hard time being seen as both. And that's really useful tool for me because I think through, you know, like, okay, so Hillary Clinton, competent, not likable, right? Like you're easy to go through and be like, this was the issue, you know? So, Mm. um, this idea of, I know, of women, of like, it's like, what is the problem? Well, the problem might be that we all have a deeply embedded bias, you know, that women are violating a really strongly held social norm about how they're supposed to be performing gender when they right. speak too much in public. And we might be seeing that everywhere from report cards to presidential elections, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. And, you know, and the numbers in terms of just confidence uh, self-confidence just going off a cliff in middle school and high school in in STEM topics and and basically any um, subject of performance. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind too about that, like, and I think this is part of the conversation about building community and all of us connecting with each other, I think as women and um, that we have to be really straightforward with each other, that women can sometimes be terrible to each other in policing. But like some of the worst gender policing can come from other women. And that's certain that begins in middle school. It's kind of, you know, that's the mean girls phenomenon, right? That uh, what's that great line where she was like, you, she says to her, you're really pretty. And she says, thank you. And then she goes, oh, so you agree? Yeah. Like, <laughs> constantly caught in these like traps so I think that it's like I know that I even have to check my own bias sometimes if I start to like um and I, I feel like it's half of my career to encourage women to speak in public and to to build visibility but even I as somebody who like works in that space sometimes we'll see somebody on the news and I'll be like why is she wearing that you know I, I definitely have to be like Emily this is a bias you know it's a bias it's <laughs> in our culture, more than 2000 years old, you know, and so we have to accept it's really hard to overcome, even for those of us that really want to. Well, even even with my daughter, I mean, my daughter is 14. And I make a point of like, you know, like, I don't talk about her pretty dresses. And I don't talk, I don't make a fuss over her hair. And I don't talk about like, I make a point of complimenting her on her social, emotional, intellectual development. Like I, I really go out of my way to not comment on her physical appearance. And yet at the same time, I'm like, she's going to think, I don't think she's pretty. And then what, you know, because I'm like, like you can't win. It's, I I obsess over the fact that I haven't told her enough that she's pretty. And what is that going to do to her self-esteem? And like, it's, it's, you know, the conversation has been made so complicated by so many bad actors in a way, but this (laughs) idea too, that like feminism is not divorced from the idea of sexual or wanting to be a vibrant sexual person, you know, it's really not about taking options away from women. You know, it's not about like, you can't be, I mean, I know, I'm, I want to be really clear that I know you're not saying this, but I feel like I myself have had to be like, it's not that you, it's that you can be smart and pretty. It's, right. like, it's not just pretty or not just smart, right? Like right, smart exactly. and pretty and, 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 you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's tricky though. But there are, yeah, there are like, sometimes I feel like I've, I've raised this daughter who could not give a flying fuck about makeup or even if her hair is brushed. And like, I love that about her. But then every once in a while, I'm like, you look like a Sasquatch. Like, come on, <laughs> like, I've created a monster. 
<laughs> oh man, that's um, awesome though. Oh, I love it. I love having a girl. Oh my God. And for every person who says, oh, just wait till they're a teenager, it drives me crazy. Cause I'm just like, you know, just like you said, like it's, I think it's, we set ourselves up to, with this narrative that, that teenagers are oppositional and they're terrible and, um, oh, we yeah. got to roll our eyes and I've had the exact opposite experience so far. So. Oh, that's awesome. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am very open about my own experiences with therapy. I've been seeing the same therapist for years, and it was my therapist who first suggested I had ADHD and set me on this personal path of transformation. But it also took a while to find the right fit for me, which is why it is so awesome that online resources like BetterHelp exist. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online from the comfort of your home. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise, which might not be available locally. If you visit their website and read through their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off of your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash women ADHD. So, uh, so tell me about Women Speak. How did you first start it? And, and yeah, I, yeah. So I also think it's a really ADHD thing that I have like two professional existences. Like oh, at least, equal. right? I know, right? Right. I, yeah. So, um, so, you know, I'm a professional actor, but I also have this company that I started years ago called Women Speak Training. And it was because, you know, mostly, like I said before, I work in the theater. And so you, I, at, like most theater actors, you have to find a way to subsidize your life in the theater because um, you're essentially working for nonprofits irregularly, which is <laughs> fine, but it is what it is. So uh, I used to make commercials, you know, I had a commercial agent and I would make commercials and that was kind of my money gig. But um, that was really hard actually to do for a lot of reasons, um, some of which were very feminist reasons. So anyway, I noticed that I was auditioning, for example, when I was making commercials for a lot of cleaning products. I was like, hmm, I don't know, this feels weird to me. Um, yeah. And so I also, <laughs> I don't know about this. So uh, I also, uh, when I was a graduate student, I taught public speaking to undergrads and I noticed when I was teaching my undergrads that the homework was always, you know, you go work on a speech and you come back and you deliver it in class. That's essentially what it was. And whenever I would say, okay, who wants to do their homework first? And there was a podium in the mental, in the middle of the classroom, they would go up to the front podium. Um, in my experience in that class, the women in the class never volunteered to go up first. So the men in the class would always felt really, I mean, tended to feel really good about their speeches. They always went up first. Their speeches were longer. Um, they engaged in like less ritualized apology and things like that. Right. And so I was like, what is the deal? Like, am I imagining this or is this like actually a thing? And I got really curious in it and I knew I wanted to coach in public speaking when, you know, I knew that that was something I wanted to pursue and I started researching it. And, you know, the research bears it out that in public spaces, even in public spaces that are like 50% men, 50% women, women typically take up about 25 to 35% of the bandwidth of what's being said. And they get interrupted more often, their ideas are stolen, you know, so all this stuff, right, that I think now a lot of us know this, but when I started the business, it wasn't as well known. Um, and there was also something that was referred to as the confidence gap in a lot of literature about women, um, speaking in public or engaging in leadership behaviors. And I got really curious too about that term. I was like, is it a competency gap or is it 
I mean, excuse me, is it a confidence gap or an experience gap? Um, because I know like my own experience, I grew up, you know, in the very conservative South and the Bible belt, you know, and then, uh, you know, moved, went to high school in a different culture totally. But like, um, I was like, I wasn't really ever encouraged to speak in public. So by the time I would have gotten to a professional space where that was required between after going through junior high and, you know, all that, I already was behind experientially, you know, I didn't have the experience. And so, you know, maybe I wouldn't be a hand raiser for those types of things. So I wanted to start a company that addressed that experience gap, but also helped women identify and push back against bias um, about you know, how people feel about them exhibiting leadership behaviors, including taking up consequential space in public, you know, speaking, you know, demonstrating leadership, uh, enacting leadership. Who do we let do that? Why do we let them do it? Why do we not let them do it? And um, many, many clients that were referred to me, they were like, you know, she's a really good leader, but she's a little abrasive. And I was never, and I see a lot of men too. I work like a lot of consultants through a lot of referral. 50% of my clients are men. I never had anybody tell me that a man's abrasive, you know? So part of it is about like um, helping, you know, identify like, is this bias? Um, so that's what Women Speak does. We work individually with women, but also, and I always want to be really clear about this. It is not a fix the woman company because traditionally public speaking companies for women have been about like, here's how we're going to teach you how to, communicate like a straight white man, like you're the problem, right? But what we're really looking to do more is to say to organizations, exclusivity is the problem. And by not allowing space for different types of voices to flourish and be heard, you're missing out on the big ideas from your talent. You know, so it is actually a driver of innovation. Diversity drives innovation. Inclusion drives innovation. So um, this idea of like building the female share of voice or the non-binary share of voice or female identifying share of voice. And, you know, my expertise is with women. I'm sure that these things, this lack of um, equal voice has to be true along other intersections of like race and sexual identity and things like class as well. Um, so, so, but what I know about is women and that's what I'm always really hot to talk about and always looking to amplify female voices, you know, so that's what Women Speak does. And it's really, really fun work. And I've let up, I've met so many amazing women doing it. You wouldn't even believe I've been doing it for 15 years, hundreds of amazing women. So do you go in, so do you work with companies who bring you mm -hmm. in to work with their employees or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of individual coaching and I also teach classes. So some of my clients have been like the Estee Lauder companies, Saatchi and Saatchi, Team One Advertising. I've worked with the Women's Campaign School at Yale, which is something I especially love, you know, training women to speak for public office. That's a real passionate, uh, that's a real passion project for me. Um, I've worked in financial services. I've worked for Willis Towers Watson and Willis. And, um, and, you know, the bias is different industry to industry, which is also something that's really interesting about it, you know? And so... And, you know, and, and I've worked with some trans women, interestingly, who have talked about the differences in their, in their experiences as public speakers or as leaders when they were men versus when they were perceived as women. And the research also aligns with that as well. And it's really, really fascinating. You know, the, you know a lot of the trans women are like, I knew, but I didn't know. I mean, at least the ones that I've talked to and they're like, I mean, it's really something to be interrupted and spoken over and explained to and you know, so um, it's exciting. It's really exciting work, you know, and I think that another thing that's happened in the, it's still, some of the work still values extroversion. 
um, which may be some of its weakness. One of the things that's been interesting to see in the pandemic because of Zoom and the chat feature, like there have been a lot of introverted people and a lot of people from the neurodivergent community who feel more comfortable participating via chat. And I think a lot of companies are going to keep that, which is really exciting, you know, to be like, you don't just have to learn how to be an extrovert. There are ways to include all types of temperaments and personalities in neurodivergence so that we can get, allow participation and encourage inclusivity and also like get those big ideas and dialogue with them and be innovative, you know? So, so that's, that's kind of it. Classes and coaching on site and off. Awesome. It's fun. So if you could rename ADHD to something slightly less problematic. Do you have any ideas? Do you want to throw I mean, anything in the ring? I will say two things that have resonated with me, um, and, but I do, do not feel like I have any good nominations, but I can also, I will say that what has been useful for me is this idea of like a neurotype um, or vast. So those for my expression of whatever this thing is, um, those, I feel like, because, like I said, mine are around dysregulation of attention, energy, and um, my memory problems. I feel like vast, what is it? Vast attention stimulus, no. Variable, variable attention, attention stimulus, stimulus traits. Trait. Yeah. That might be useful. I know that's like a lot of people are like, boo. But for me, like that actually might be a useful term. Or um, are you, you're the one who talks about left-handed scissors, right? Like, uh, see, yeah. that's a really, that is profoundly useful for me because I really feel like for what I have and the, the way it exhibits as a learning difference for me is if it had been framed as like a neurotype that needed um, an account that's not necessarily a pathology, but um, needs accommodation, like giving a left-handed desk or left-handed scissors, I feel like that would have been life-altering for me. And the onus like, is not on the individual. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a disorder. And I mean, I feel like I can recognize that like losing things that that's, you know, that's not good. Um, but I also feel like attention in and of itself, it's such a weird name because like it's in symptom. It's not necessarily, you know, it's like nausea is a symptom, mm. you know, but like many things cause nausea. Not all of them are illness, like pregnancy or the body getting rid of something during food poisoning, you know what I mean? Like there, or, or it could be a brain tumor or an illness, you know, it could be anything. And so this idea that like attention, we're somehow talking about the symptom and not the cause right now um, is interesting to me. Cause I wonder if like a lot of things are kind of being swept into this diagnosis and as research continues and as the conversation evolves, if we'll, there'll be more differentiators underneath that. Yeah. Um, that allow for better treatment and symptom management, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, try, it can be caused by trauma, physical trauma to the head or psychological trauma. It can be caused by, but um, so uh, in order to appropriately allocate resources for that make room for those differences, I feel like that, that I would feel comfortable myself being like in a neuro, in the world of like a neurotype so that I, and I do have that like kind of guilty thing where when I identify sometimes I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to take away resources for somebody who might need it more. Um, which I know is like, not, is like a little shame on me because it's like <laughs> old stuff, but I do feel too, like it's good. For, I think it's good to hear from people like me who do have a more moderate expression because it's like, we are trying, it's like, yes, you're not imagining it. You don't have to have the extreme version to have it and have it have a significant impact on your life and to argue for more bespoke resources for the manifestation of it for you is a good thing. And actually, if you really are interested in not taking up resources from people who might, you know, need more um, immediate and 
types of interventions, then you actually should be talking about moderate disease expression and talking about neurotype and talking about, you know what I mean? Like, let's get that up there so we can figure out how to align everybody with the best thing, you know? Um, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. We went down all sorts of fascinating little uh, meandering. So <laughs> I was curious, I was curious what we were going to end up talking about. Cause I feel like with you, I could, it could have been literally anything. So <laughs> I know I feel the same way. I'm like, there's no telling where we'll go. Like after our lunch together, we have well, so much to talk about. I know, know. Right. And I have like 12 other topics that I'm like, must follow up. I probably won't, but you know, I'm like, oh, all if of these you ever want, want to, talk to about. I will do it anytime. I love talking about all this stuff, even if it's just like on one of our walks or something, you know, there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.